We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27, and we will read verses 1 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself, and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, get them for me. And he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, Bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food, and he brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of a son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. 
Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let me begin this morning by asking you, have you ever had a moment when your faith was weak? You still believed, but you didn't fully trust. Have you ever, knowing the revealed will of God, turned to your own strength and effort to accomplish God's will? rather than relying on his sovereign providence to work things out? Have you ever, knowing the revealed will of God, done something contrary to it and justified yourself, convinced yourself that it was justified because you were doing the right thing, the greater good, you were accomplishing the will of God? I think if we're honest that we've all been one, if not all three of those places at some point In our lives. And when we come to our senses in that moment, I think we often cry out with the the father of the boy who was possessed with a mute spirit in Mark 9. He comes, he asks Jesus for help, and Jesus responds and says, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this plea acknowledges the weakness of our faith, that it's not pure. It's often mingled with doubt, sometimes with disobedience and self-reliance. Well, this morning, as we look at the first half of Genesis chapter 27, we've skipped forward in time to a point in Isaac's life when he is old. And he thinks that he is nearing the end of his days. And so he looks to pass on the blessings of the covenant to one of his sons. So let's put this text in its broader context. In chapter 25, we saw the election of God in the choice of Jacob, the younger son, over Esau, the older. And we saw that it didn't depend on works. It didn't depend on anything that Jacob had done, uh, anything deserving in him, but solely on on the will of God, who chooses. And then last Lord's Day, we explored the life of Isaac in chapter 26, and we saw that the Lord was faithful, even when we're not. Even though Isaac fell into many of the same sins and situations that his father did, the Lord was faithful. Well, now as we come to chapter 27, we're going to see that imperfect though our faith may be, The grace of God works according to the immutable will and faithfulness of God. What we see is that Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob all demonstrate faith by their actions. But that faith is impure. It's faith that is mixed with doubt, disobedience, and self-reliance. So I want to look at each of these three people in turn and see how their actions reflect faith in God in the promises of God, but also how their doubt or their self-reliance gets in the way. So let's begin with Isaac. Our text starts by telling us that Isaac is now old. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. 
that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. Now the math is a little complicated on this one. Uh, You have to calculate it working backward from later passages in Genesis concerning the ages of Joseph and Jacob uh, and work backwards to Esau being 40 when he marries his wives at the end of chapter 26. Uh, And Isaac would have been 100 years old at that point. And so we've moved forward in time some number of years, and and not all commentators agree on the exact age of Isaac. Uh, There's variance in the calculations they make, but uh, I will go with the consensus opinion, which seems to be that Isaac was about 137 years old at this point. Now that means, if you're keeping track, that Jacob and Esau are 77 at this point. They're not young men anymore which is interesting because Jacob isn't even married yet. Esau's been married now for 37 years, but their father, Isaac, has gotten old. He's 137 years old. Now, according to chapter 25, Ishmael, Isaac's brother, died when he was this same age, 137. So Isaac is the same age when his brother passed away, and his eyesight has grown dim. He's lost his sense of sight. He's relying on his other senses, as we see in the text, touch and smell and He thinks that he's nearing death, and so he begins to think about uh, the end of life. Now, he's not actually close to death. He's going to live another 43 years and die at the age of 180, but he's getting older, so he's thinking about the end of life, passing on the covenant blessings to his sons. But let's examine how he goes about it. First, he calls Esau, his older son, to him. Now, this is slightly unusual because even we saw uh, in the death of Abraham, that Isaac and Ishmael were both there to bury their father. So it's likely that he had called them both to his side uh, there on his deathbed. Later in the book of Genesis, we'll see Jacob call all of his sons to him before he dies. In Genesis 49.1, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So that would be the common practice, to gather all of the sons and then bless them each in turn. For Isaac to call Esau and not Jacob is unusual. Not only that, we see that he called Esau secretly. He he, he hadn't even talked to Rebekah, his wife, about what he planned to do. She overheard the conversation we saw in verse 5. Why wouldn't he tell Rebekah? the love of his life, his wife of 97 years at this point, what he is about to do. Well, it's likely that he knew or at least suspected that Rebecca wouldn't be happy with what he was planning. She had received a word from the Lord when she was pregnant regarding the fate of these two boys. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This promise indicates God's design to elevate Jacob, the younger son, to the head of the covenant community. But Isaac is called Esau, not Jacob. Now we know that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And so it's likely that he did this in secret because he knew that he and his wife were not on the same page uh, regarding their two boys. And he may have even thought, if she knows what I'm going to do, she's going to bring up what she heard from God when she was pregnant, and I don't want to hear it because I want to bless Esau. 
And look at the blessing that Isaac pronounces on Jacob, thinking that he's blessing Esau in verses 27 through 29. He says, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now there are a couple of important elements in this blessing that are worth pointing out. First, he blessed him with plenty, with prosperity, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. It's a blessing of prosperity and abundance. Second, he blessed him with power, people serving him, nations bowing down, his own brothers bowing before him. Third, he blessed him with prominence, curses for those who are your enemies, blessings for those who are your friends. This is to say that God is on his side. But it's more than just prosperity, power, and prominence. Matthew Henry says, more is certainly comprehended in this blessing than appears at first sight. It must amount to an entail of the promise of the Messiah and of the church. This was, in the patriarchal dialect, the blessing. Something spiritual, doubtless, is included in it. It's what comes to be known as the blessing of Abraham, the promise of nations bowing down to him, hence at the promise of the coming Messiah, the one who will come from the line of Abraham who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the curses and blessings indicate a people in relationship to God as their covenant Lord under his protection. And this is the same wording that God used when he blessed Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So this is Isaac passing on to his son the covenant promises made to Abraham and then renewed with Isaac himself. But it's also Isaac trying to give to Esau a blessing that had been promised specifically to Jacob. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And yet Isaac, thinking that he is blessing the older son, says, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Isaac tries to reverse the promised blessing of God. Now this is evidence that he knew that promise. Rebecca hadn't kept it to herself. She had told Isaac what God had said, and he rebels at the idea. He acts in direct opposition to the revealed word of God. Now, why would Isaac do such a thing? Well, the only motive that Scripture gives us is because of his stomach. Remember, it said in chapter 25, And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. And here in verses 3 and 4, Isaac says to Esau, Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, Go out to the field and hunt game for me. Make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac loved the food. He's motivated by his stomach. In the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul describes those that he calls enemies of the cross, saying that they are those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I don't think Isaac is this far gone that we should consider him an enemy of the cross, but he he is acting like he has his mind set 
on earthly things. He's letting his taste buds rule him. But there's a clue in the text that something more is happening than just his taste buds. When Rebecca hatches her scheme, she has Jacob take two young goats from the flock. And we read in verses 9 and 10, Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, that he may bless you before his death. So Rebecca, who has been married to Isaac for 97 years at this point, she probably knows how to cook for him. She's confident that she can make goat taste just like the wild game that he loves. And Jacob is pretty confident in that too because he questions her plan, but not on the basis of her cooking. He questions it on the basis of whether his father will be able to distinguish him from Esau because of the hair or lack thereof on his arms. The point is, if Rebekah could fix goat and make it taste exactly like what Isaac loved, then Esau's hunting was superfluous. It was unnecessary. They didn't need the wild game. They were wealthy with goats. Isaac didn't need venison to satisfy his taste buds. It was more about the idea than it was about the taste. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but not because he couldn't get that taste somewhere else, but because he liked the idea of his son, the adventurer, the great hunter, the wild man, quite unlike himself. Isaac never left the promised land. He lived a life of relative ease. His father was wealthy. He inherited everything. Perhaps he's living vicariously through his wild son, Perhaps he's just being rebellious by loving the son that God hates and has rejected. And the irony is, is that he's presented here in a light that reminds us a great deal of Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now Isaac promises the blessing in exchange for a plate of wild game. Whatever his motivation was in that, he acted in direct opposition to the express revealed will of God. But here's the thing, he did so in faith. I know what you're thinking at this point. How does that work? How does he disobey God in faith? Well, listen to what Hebrews says about Isaac. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, by faith he blessed Jacob, thinking it was Esau, attempting to go against the revealed will of God. He believed the promises. He believed in the covenant made with his father Abraham. He had faith that God would keep those covenant promises. So when he blessed him with those things, he believed them. And we see in verse 33, then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Isaac acted in faith, but his faith was impure. It was tainted with disobedience. And when he realized what had happened, he trembled, not with anger or rage, but with fear. 
Isaac was blind physically, but that blindness was sort of poetic because it pointed to the spiritual blindness that caused him to directly disobey his God. And when those scales fell off his spiritual eyes and he realized what he had just tried to do, what he had almost done, he trembled with fear of the one that he had defied. Calvin comments that there is no doubt that his fear springs from faith. In that moment, he realized the danger his soul had been in, that he had defied the living God, the Lord of the covenant. But Calvin continues and says, He, renouncing the affections of the flesh, now yields himself entirely to God and acknowledging God as the author of the benediction which he had uttered, ascribes due glory to him and not daring to retract it. God's covenant promises are God's to dispense. And where and upon whom he pleases. Isaac was the head of the covenant people, but he was not the covenant Lord. He had no business attempting to direct the blessing of the covenant on the basis of his whim and preference. And in the providence of God, he was not allowed to do so. Imperfect though his faith was, the grace of God worked according to the immutable, unchanging will and faithfulness of God. And how often do we act like Isaac, indulging the desires of our flesh, whether it's our taste buds as we eat selfishly and gluttony, a rebellious spirit loving the things that God hates, indulging sin, We know what things God hates. He's told us in the scriptures. We know the sins that we're to put to death in our flesh and the fruit of the Spirit that we're supposed to be cultivating. But knowing this, we still indulge sin. We still act selfishly with our spouse. We still savor that tasty bit of gossip from time to time. We still let our gaze linger, men, a little too long on an immodest woman. We still dwell on the hateful things that we'd like to say to someone that we think has offended us. We act just like Isaac. We trust the promises of the covenant, the promises of forgiveness and salvation in Christ. But at the same exact moment that we're trusting in those promises, we give ourselves into slavery to our sin. Our faith is tinged with disobedience. Let the cry of our heart with tears in our eyes be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But Isaac isn't the only one here in this text with an imperfect faith. Let's look at Rebekah, his wife. And just as I challenged our thinking in chapter 25 uh, concerning uh, Jacob and Esau, our understanding of Jacob as a mama's boy, we saw that that's not what's being pictured there for us. I want to do the same with our impression of Rebecca here in chapter 27 because I think it's easy to look at her actions here and to see nothing more than a mother playing favorites, scheming behind her husband's back, seeking to acquire material wealth or blessing for her favored son. But I think that might be a wrong understanding of what's happening. Rebecca does scheme. She does go behind her husband's back. But I think we often misjudge her motives. And therefore, we misjudge the nature of her sin. Rebecca received a revelation from God when she was pregnant concerning her two sons. 
And Scripture tells us that she loved Jacob, the son that God had chosen. It doesn't tell us why. It told us, it told us why Isaac loved Esau. But it doesn't describe any motive to Rebekah, which leaves open, as we saw, the possibility that maybe she loved Jacob because she knew the revealed will of God and embraced it wholeheartedly. But here we see that she overhears Isaac instructing Esau and promising him the blessing, and she immediately jumps into action. She instructs Jacob to go get two young goats from the flock, presumably two because they're choice cuts of meat that she knows can better be prepared uh, to fool and deceive her husband. She says she can prepare this meat so Isaac won't know the difference. Her plan is for Jacob to take Esau's place and receive the blessing. And this will happen, as we've seen, through deception. But look at Rebekah's faith. When she explains her plan to Jacob, he has no doubts that she can prepare the food in such a way as to fool Isaac. But he's concerned about his father, knowing the difference between him and his brother. In verse 11 and 12, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Well, he's got a good point. There are obvious physical differences between Esau and Jacob. But look how confident Rebekah is in verse 13. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. The question isn't if her food will fool Isaac. It's if Jacob can pull this off with his smooth skin, wrong voice, wrong smell. Her confidence is not in her cooking ability not in Jacob's acting ability. She has a plan for fooling all of Isaac's other senses, but I think her confidence is in the promise of God, the promise that God had made to her concerning her son. I think she has a genuine faith in that promise, that the older would serve the younger, and that gives her confidence that her plan's going to work, that the younger son will be blessed. She's risking quite a lot here. She's risking her relationship with her husband of 97 years. She's risking Jacob's life at the hands of his brother Esau, who is a skilled hunter. She risks a curse rather than a blessing. That's why I think we're wrong if we judge Rebecca to be greedy for gain for her favored son. The risk is hardly worth the reward in that case. But if she believes the promise was looking for more than just material blessing, then the risk starts to make more sense. Calvin says, The inheritance promised by God was firmly fixed in her mind. She knew that it was decreed to her son Jacob, and therefore, relying upon the covenant of God and keeping in mind the oracle received, she forgets the world. In other words, she forgets the risk. She's so confident in the promise. Like Isaac, she believes in the covenant and in the promises. But where Isaac rebelled against the will of God and the choice of heir, Rebekah doesn't. She wants Jacob to inherit the blessing of the covenant. But as John Gill puts it, in these, her sentiments, she was right, but wrong in the ways and means she took to get it for him. So again, the question is why? If she believed the promises, if she had faith in the God of the covenant, 
then why did she undertake to get Jacob the blessing by means of deception? There must have been some fault in her faith. I would suggest that her fault was the same as Sarah's before her. She knew the will of God. She was eager to see it come to pass, and she decided to take matters into her own hands. As Arthur Pink says, her course was plain. She should have trusted in the Lord to bring to naught the carnal design of Isaac. But she took the way of the flesh, plotted against her husband, and taught her son to deceive his father. She had faith, but it was an imperfect faith that was mixed with a sinful self-reliance. She should have trusted God to bring about what he had promised. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight as we look back at this. We can read the account of Balaam in Numbers 23. You remember this? The king of Moab. And remember, the Moabites are descended from Lot's oldest daughter. But the king of Moab hires Balaam to come and curse Israel. But when he opens his mouth to speak, this is what comes out. Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed, and how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Balaam then goes on to bless Israel instead of cursing them. Well, that didn't come out the way they had planned. So he tries a second time, and this time when he speaks, this is what he says. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Four times Balaam tries to curse Israel, and four times he blesses them. God worked through Rebekah and Jacob's deception here in Genesis 27. And though Isaac thought he was blessing Esau, he actually blesses Jacob. And when it's done, Isaac knew that it was of God. And he says much the same thing that Balaam just said, that he can't undo what God has done. But Rebekah, if her faith had been pure, should have waited for God to providentially work out his perfect will. Isaac would have blessed Jacob, perhaps in the way that Balaam blessed Israel. But instead, she took matters into her own hands. Like Sarah did with the promise of a son, she thought God needed her help. Instead of trusting God's providence, she relies on her own self-effort to bring about the will of God. And this leads her to justify doing wrong, lying, deceiving her husband, because She's doing the greater good. She's stopping him from making a mistake. She's, in her mind, saving the promise. So she justifies the deception because it's being done in the service of God's will. What she failed to keep in mind is that the God of truth is not served by men's lies. So her faith was an imperfect faith mixed with self-reliance and justification for small sins in the name of the greater good. And how often do we fall into this same sort of error? Knowing the revealed will of God and determined to see it through, we turn to our own strength, our own self-effort in order to accomplish it. And this can take several forms. Sometimes it, it may look like Rebecca's deception. We think that God needs us to accomplish His will in the world. And in fact, God may use us, 
even in our sin, but he doesn't need us. And he certainly doesn't need us to sin. Sin is never justified in the service of the Holy One of Israel. Our God is a God of truth. He is truth. He cannot lie. And he would not have us lie in his service. Our thinking that we're doing the will of God is no excuse for violating the commandments of God. He doesn't need us to break his commandments because we think we're doing some greater good. Rebekah could have opposed Isaac's plan to bless Esau with a blessing that God had expressly designated for Jacob without resorting to sinful means. She could have gone first to prayer, as she had when she was pregnant. She could have appealed to her husband as the authority figure, spoke the truth to him, pleaded with him to do what was right to honor God's will, but she took matters into her own hands. She justified lying and deceiving her husband because she thought she was carrying out God's will. We do this sort of thing all the time, mostly in subtler ways. We have some faith. We know the revealed will of God, but we plan to carry out the will of God based on our own self-reliance. Say we're struggling with some sin. We know what God's will is, for our sanctification, that we are to put to death anger, malice, hatred, evil speaking. And so I think to myself, all right, put that sin to death. So I muster up my self-control. By the strength of my will, I bite my tongue, not going to say those hateful things that I'm thinking, not going to give vent to my rage that I'm feeling in my heart. I won't speak those things. And so what happens is one of two things. Either I'm successful and not giving vent to my anger and I manage by sheer willpower and self-control to bridle my tongue. Might not have said those things, but I'm still thinking them. They're still in my heart, but I didn't say them. So what happens is I've still sinned, but now I've added pride to it because I think I've accomplished something for God. The other thing that can happen is this. I might try and fail to bridle my tongue. I give in to my anger. And I try again to exercise self-control. And every time I try, my anger gets the best of me. And I say things that I later regret. So what happens is I begin to feel defeated, discouraged by sin. Now I'm a defeated Christian, discouraged and ready to give up. I may even begin to doubt my salvation. I know the will of God. He wants me to put this sin to death, but I can't seem to do it. Well, it's because I've gone about it in the strength of my own will. What I should have done was resorted to prayer, repentance, confession, humbling myself, seeking accountability with other men in the church or my spouse or whoever needs to be involved to hold me accountable. And then plead with God that Christ would live his life through me by the power of his spirit to change my heart. Not that I just wouldn't speak those things, but that I wouldn't dwell on them, that I wouldn't think them. That would be relying on the grace of God and his strength working in me rather than self-reliance on my own strength. But this is what Rebecca did. She knew the will of God, but instead of relying on God, she relied on herself. She had faith. But her faith wasn't perfect because it was mixed with self-reliance, which is really the antithesis of faith. Faith is reliance on Christ, reliance on God for every good thing. She believed the promises, 
but she relied on herself to accomplish it. So again, we should repent of our self-reliance and cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now Jacob follows his mother's plan. He's with her in this. And so their sin is very similar, but there's an added dimension to Jacob's sin that makes his possibly the worst one of all. He does believe. He has faith. He obviously believes in the covenant promises. He struck a deal for the birthright. He takes an interest in the blessing because he believes. But when his mother proposes her plan, he offers this objection that we've read in verses 11 and 12. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Now, if Jacob's faith was the same as Rebekah's, he wouldn't have feared a curse. But he doubted. He doubted. He, he had belief in the covenant promises to the family of his grandfather, but he had doubts about his own role. Like his mother, he acts in self-reliance rather than trusting in the providence of God, but his, his faith is mixed with doubt. His mom's confidence and her willingness to bear the consequences persuades him to go along with her plan. And once again, I think Jacob's motives are not greed and covetousness. I think he sincerely believed in the covenant promises. I think he believed that Esau, his brother, was unfit to inherit the blessings and responsibilities of the covenant. That's why he bought the birthright. That's why he goes along with his mother's plan. But look at the sin that he lets her lead him into because of his doubt. First, he sets out to deceive his father. Well, this violates the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Deceiving your father is not honoring him. Next, he lies, claiming to be his brother Esau, claiming to have wild game, which is in fact goat. This violates the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness. But then, when his father questions him, he goes one step further in verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Now he's drugged God's name down into the dirt with him. He's not just lying anymore. He's violating the third commandment. He's taking the Lord's name in vain. He's not using God's name in a holy and reverent manner when he attaches it to his lie. Because of his doubt, Jacob has let someone else influence him and convince him to go ahead with sin, and he has moved from one sin to the next until he has moved into a very grave sin. Of all the imperfect faith on display in this chapter, we're probably more like Jacob than we are Isaac or Rebekah. Faith mixed with self-reliance and doubt. Believing in God, but doubting His goodness to us personally. Doubting His power in our lives. But notice what we don't see in this story. We don't see any condemnation. There's obvious sin on display, but God is at work using it all to further His purposes. Earlier, I shared the story of Balaam to make the point that Rebekah should have trusted in God's providence to bring about his will. But God didn't do that. He chose to work it out this way. So we have to ask ourselves, why? 
Why work through the sin of Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob? Why not circumvent their sin? Why not work out his perfect will, giving the blessing to Jacob in a way that doesn't involve all this sinning? God could have if he wanted to, but he didn't. He chose to do it this way. Well, notice something else that we see here. All four members of the family play a role in the events of this chapter. The irony is, is that the one member of the family who is hated by God, who is passed over and left to his own sin, reprobate, Esau, is the one person in this episode whose sin is not on display at this time. And we'll deal more with Esau next week. But what we've read so far in the story, Esau has obeyed his father. He has brought what was prepared by his own labor, his own hands, and he's told the truth. That's more than we can say for Isaac, who disobeyed, Rebekah, who deceived, Jacob, who lied. From what we've seen so far in this chapter, Esau is without obvious sin. He's more exemplary than the rest of his family. I think God chose to work it out this way in order to make a point. The ones who were blessed by God didn't deserve it. They were sinners. Imperfect though their faith was, the grace of God worked according to the immutable, unchanging will and faithfulness of God. In spite of their sin, God worked for good to carry out his will, to grant the blessing to Jacob. It ties together the lesson of chapter 25 regarding the election of God by grace alone and the lesson of chapter 26 regarding the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God works through our imperfect faith to make the point that he is gracious and merciful, imparting blessing to those who do not deserve it by the good pleasure of his will and according to his grace alone. This should be a great encouragement to us. Our faith is just as imperfect as Jacob's, Isaac's, or Rebekah's, and yet we can have confidence in the immutable, unchanging will of God, in the faithfulness of our Savior. He has promised forgiveness, life everlasting for those who trust in him. He is faithful. He has said, will he not do it? So with tears in our eyes, let us pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray.